You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. Take your Bibles and turn to Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 2, Lord willing, we'll look at verses 34 through 40, (laughs) we'll probably break it up into two parts today, Acts chapter 2, verses 34 through 40, if you don't have a copy of God's word in front of you, I encourage you, uh, I don't think they were in your bulletins, that was my bad, all right? Uh, but there are notes for this ser- sermon on the tables in the foyer. You're not going to offend me at all if you want to stand up and go get some, all right? Um, but the other thing you can do is you can also download the Version Bible app. Uh, after you download it, go to the More tab, tap Events, find Mount Carmel Baptist Church, click on today's sermon. Uh, and there all the notes, quotes, references, scriptures will be provided for you on your phone that you can uh, save and share as well. We just want you to make sure we're preaching God's word to you. Acts chapter 2 verses 34 through 40. This is part 3 of our Pentecost series and I've simply entitled it Marks of Repentance. Marks of Repentance. Just the other day my son sucker punched my daughter Scotland. I tried to tell y'all had some a mess. And as I'm typing and working, I hear, you know, to my left, <laughs> right, from her, right from mama, right? Go give her a hug and tell your sissy you're sorry. And actually hadn't did give up to, go up to her and give her the sweetest hug, all right? It's this weird love-hate relationship they have. <laughs> However, I can recall when my mama... And daddy told me the exact same thing, and it ran down more like a hostage situation. I muttered under my breath a non-apology to my sister, and then against my will, I gave her the most non-voluntary hug you can give somebody. (laughs) We want to believe that we mature and we grow up out of that. But if you take a glance at our family feuds, the work drama the passive-aggressive social media posts that weren't aimed at you but seemed to have everything to do with you, and PR apologies from celebrities and politicians, it shows you that humanity's not really good at apologies. We sense the insincerity of apologies. Often, too, an insincere apology is more hurtful than no apology at all. When we receive insincere apologies, we often outright dismiss them without ever giving fault to forgiving the offender. In the Bible, God's forgiveness of our sins is linked to genuine repentance. After the descent of the Holy Spirit on the apostles at Pentecost, The Apostle Peter preached his first sermon. It was a scripture-filled, Christ-centered proclamation. The audience was gripped, and they're ready to respond to the sermon. And they're going to literally shout back to the Apostle Paul during his preaching, what must we do? How should we respond to this message that you've given to us? And in answering the question, We're going to see God's forgiveness being conditioned on genuine repentance. And what are the marks of this genuine repentance? Let's read Acts chapter 2, verses 34 through 40. It says, For it was not David, and I'll explain this quotation he makes in just a moment. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, this is a psalm of David that, The Apostle Peter's quoting, The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And now 
Peter's going to interpret that for us. He says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, the Christ. And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Right? They are aware, just like you and I have to become supernaturally aware through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that their personal sin was responsible for the death of God's Son and our Savior. They realize that. What are we to do? Are we just damned? And notice the response. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Notice, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I mean, this amazing relationship with God. Then notice the next verse. 29, for the promise is for you, y'all, and y'all's children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. I love that it just says, with many other words, he kept on preaching. Amen, right? And then this final statement, I'll read verse 41. It says, so those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. That's the apostles. It's amazing. Let me kind of help you have the context in which this call to repentance was given to this crowd. When we read in verse 34 and, uh, and 35, this psalm of David that's being quoted, Peter is citing Psalm 110, verse 1. If you want to write it down, Psalm 110, verse 1. And he is doing this to assert that David knew someone who is far greater than him, and that would fulfill God's promises. Now, if you're new to church or you're new to the Bible, you say, so what is this one guy talking about some other guy who's greater than him? You need to understand, when David wrote this psalm, he is the king of Israel. There is no one greater in Israel. And yet he is speaking about someone that he calls Lord. All right? The supreme commander. All right? His authority. And David <laughs> reverses conventional speech when he talks about this in, in, in ancient Israel. To speak of your descendant as a superior, someone other than you that descends from you as your superior, is just counterintuitive. The honor was given to the ancestor, of course. And yet you see in this text that David speaking in the first person is talking about whoever this individual is, he's greater than me and I should bend my knee to him. Now it's interesting to think of the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Now remember, uh, more than likely you're the apostles of Jesus, the original disciples, probably read the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Greek is the common language. It's their vernacular at that day. The Old Testament, of course, was, of course, was written in Hebrew. And so um, they had some scholars come together, 70. That's why we call it the LXX, Roman numerals for 70. But approximately 70 scholars came together and translated the Hebrew into the Greek. And that's what they would have read and studied. But the Hebrew text, when you go back and read in Psalm 110, it's actually pretty amazing. Because the way it reads in Psalm 110, just go to verse 34 and I'll, and I'll read it to you how it reads in Hebrews. It says this, the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel, all right, declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now this is interesting because we see the two words Lord and we just think they're talking about the same person. The Hebrew text is explicitly clear. David first addresses God. Okay, the God of Israel, the personal name of God. And the reason it's translated Lord is because back in that time, they used four letters to stand for the personal name of God. All right, we call it the Tetragrammaton. More than likely, it was pronounced Yahweh. And in respect to his name, they would take that name and put in the word Adonai, Lord, out of respect for his personal name. So when you translate it from the Greek, you just see two lords sitting there. 
They translate it kurios, kurios. But it's clear that when David gives this psalm, he's saying, God told my superior to sit at his right hand. So you need to understand how significant of a statement this is for David. That God himself has told a descendant of David, you're going to be my right hand man. And David will even bend the knee to him. Now what does that have to do? Here's, here's what Peter's been trying to demonstrate through this sermon. That Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, is both the Lord of Israel and the Savior of all humanity. And, he, and he's using this kind of arguing from lesser to greater. You, you ask the people of Israel, who's the greatest king in Israel? And they would all have said, David, right? Everybody would have amen that. He says, now let me ask you this. Did David die? And they would have been like, yeah, he's died. He's, his tomb's right down the road from here. Is he rotting in his grave? Yes. So is there any chance of a resurrection with David? They're like, nope. Was David himself raised to the right hand of God? Did David become God's right-hand man? And everybody's going, no. And so clearly what, what Peter's trying to say, so this psalm isn't about David. Everybody, yeah. And then he goes to tell him, he says, but there's this descendant of David. His name is Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. He died, did not decay, was raised from the dead, ascended on high, and now he is God's right-hand man. Do you understand that? That David even bows his knee to King Jesus. Now, you've got to remember what you just told the people of Israel. Your greatest king bows his knee to Jesus. And then think of it. They were the same group and crowd that yelled, crucify him. Do you understand the sheer panic that ripped through the audience? That's why they start screaming out, what must we do? We've crucified the Christ, David's superior. And, and David, if you haven't heard the other sermons, Peter had already reassured them this was a part of God's plan. All right? That he knew this would happen and so used it redemptively. But nevertheless, they understood their culpability. And so what does he call them to do? They were pierced. With conviction. It's the deepest emotional wound. I mean, imagine it, right? What should we do, Peter? Now, could, could you think about this? Can you just pause a minute? Peter could have said, it's just bad luck. It is what it is. You're condemned. When Christ returns, that's it. And this shows you, and he's going to talk about this. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But in Acts 5.31, it says that God gave Jesus, right, this authority to grant repentance and forgiveness. That if Jesus goes, forgive them. Preach the gospel, the good news, that their sins can be forgiven and not held, uh, held to their account. That's what Peter is here to do. Say, I've got good news. On the basis of Jesus' authority, I've come to tell you how your sins can be forgiven. And notice the first criteria. It is repentance. Write this down. Here's the big idea we're going to unpack in the last couple of minutes we're here together. Repentance is necessary for God's forgiveness. Repentance is necessary for God's forgiveness the primary thing promised in the gospel message is the promise of the forgiveness of sins and eternal life with God no matter what any preacher says from any pulpit from any Christian church what I want you to know is the Bible tells us over and over again that Jesus Christ died for sins in order to forgive sin and to remove them the gospel is ultimately about the forgiveness of sins. Does the gospel include other benefits? Yes. But to miss the forgiveness of sins and receive all the other benefits is to make it null and void. Okay? That's the preeminent thing that we preach. That Christ offers, offers forgiveness in his name. And at the same time, I need you to catch this. God is not looking in a response from people that is something akin to our insincere apologies. He is not wanting somebody to kind of go through the motions of, hey, 
you get over there and you tell God you're sorry and you give him a hug. And against our will, we go, ugh. That is not what God is looking for. The Bible makes clear over and over again that there is a godly sorrow which leads unto salvation. And that's distinguished from a sorrow of the world, a sorrow from unbelievers that works death and condemnation. So there's a a big difference. I need you to understand this. This is something that radically happens in the heart of somebody. It is possible to force, you know what I mean? Someone to get, get over there to God and say this and throw your arms around them. It's completely different to actually know and feel that from the inside out. And that is the requirement for the forgiveness of God. And I need you to understand this. If you're listening to me and you've been in church a billion years, you've heard preachers over and over again, and if they have never called you to that kind of repentance, you do not have the full gospel message. I need you to understand that. A a preacher, a proclaimer of the gospel that doesn't call people to repent of sin, they cannot receive the forgiveness of sins. And church, that's no good news at all. The place of repentance as the condition of forgiveness is not due to any meritorious character. I need you to catch this. We're not repenting. And by virtue of our repentance, we are earning God's favor. That's not what we're doing. Because let me tell you right now, if God said, you must perfectly repent, none of us would get into heaven. Okay? He's looking for a godly sorrow that works repentance, and we will spend our life bearing fruits of that godly sorrow, that we have broken the heart of God. But thank God if God said, all right, repent, Josh, and be perfect, because if you stumble again, I'm not giving you another chance. Then I would be gone a long time ago, okay? So there's a difference. And I think we know this when we talk about our relationships. When someone comes and sincerely apologizes to you, they're not guaranteeing you it'll never happen again, right? I've been friends with people that's like over and over again, like, dude, you just don't get it, do you? But nevertheless, you can sense, you can tell when someone's really heartbroken, like, I did it again and I messed up and I'm sorry. And we're reconciled. And then you know when somebody treats you like they just went through the motions and they're going to do it again. God knows. Y'all, if we can sense that in our relationships, you don't think the God of the universe knows that's in our hearts? He knows. He knows. So what is repentance? Number one. Now here's where we're going to just take a segue from Acts 2. Because I sincerely believe this. When Peter said, repent, that audience that he preached to that day knew good and well what he meant by it. With gentleness and respect, this has nothing to do with you. I don't know about you, but have you used the word repentance in your conversations this week? (laughs) Probably not. We just don't use the word repent like that. You don't see it in the media. You don't see it in everyday vernacular. They would have understood that. The prophets of Israel would have called the, the people of Israel over and over again to repentance. So I just want to do a brief biblical survey, okay, and teach you what is repentance. So number one, repentance is this. If you wanted to take a a Greek interpretation of the word, it's a change of mind. At the very basic fundamental level, it is a change of mind. The Old Testament word simply means to turn around. And the Greek word, which is used here in Acts chapter 2, which is metanoia, comes from two parts. There's meta and noia or nous. Meta means after. It's almost like a preposition. Um, and noose is mind. And a lot of ways to translate this could be to rethink something, okay? To uh, have a change in perspective. That's the whole idea. Um, or, as we said here, a change of mind. Now, if I had to give you, so that's like just the lexical definition that if you went and searched it, right, that's what you're going to get a change of mind. Now, what is the 
theological definition. That's different from the lexical definition. All right? We're saying when you add up all the times repentance is used in the New Testament, what kind of theology emerges from that? And here's, here's a, a huge definition. And, and just go home and meditate on it. All right? But it's this. Repentance, write it down, is when an individual attains a divinely provided new understanding of the offensiveness of their sin toward God and feels compelled to change their beliefs and behavior in a radical turning to God. That makes me so happy. I love robust definitions. But the part I wanted to emphasize this, it's a divinely provided perspective. I submit this too with gentleness and respect. If the Holy Spirit hadn't fell at Pentecost and was working through the preaching of the word, it would have hit a wall. They would have said that and be like, okay, and would have went home. What had moved and gripped these people's hearts to go, what should we do? That's because God was at work in their heart. This is what's happening. So he gives them, and we're going to talk about it more, God, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, gives us a glimpse, just a glimpse, church, of the awfulness of our sin. He's got, I'm going to let you for just a second to see your sin kind of like how I see it. Because, church, if we saw it exactly as he saw it, we would be in absolute, utter despair. Okay? But he's like, I'm going to give you enough of a glimpse that you'll repent. He granted them repentance that day. And when that takes hold, when that perspective takes hold into our heart and generates a feeling of sorrow, it, lo- it, do- it, it does exactly what those people do. What, what do I got to do? What do I got to do? How can I make amends? Now, the good thing is what we're going to see is the person <laughs> that made the amends for us is Jesus himself. Okay? Which brings me uh, to a couple of two. Let me give you these two things. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Number two, repentance is not penance nor a ritual. I'm going to go ahead and be just that frank. When we talk about penance, uh, p- repentance, sometimes that gets coupled with penance. And penance is a Catholic doctrine, a Roman Catholic doctrine, about the sacrament of confession. Um, you go to a priest, you confess your sins, and the priest may or may not offer things for you to do as a reparation, to make amends for what you've done. Here's the, here's the thing that's really tragic about that is because as the Roman Catholics understand it, when you repent of sin and you're baptized, you receive this justification, this right standing with God. Nevertheless, you can commit a mortal sin that kind of throws you out from that place. And so you must use the sacrament of confession to receive the grace for, to be put back into right standing with God. So do you understand that it, with gentleness and respect, if that's your doctrine, you're going in and out of your eternal security every day. Okay, and I submit this. I've I've looked at the scriptures. I see the ones they talk about, Matthew 18 and John 20 and James chapter 5, where we talk about confessing sins one to another, the office of the keys and and how the apostles had this ability, this power to forgive other sins. I do think they're, they're pressing something into the text that just doesn't exist. I think preachers have the responsibility to assure people that they're forgiven, but I can never actually grant you forgiveness. That's why when we talk about confessing sins, it's good to confess sins to one another, especially if you've sinned against somebody, okay? But for for prayer and for healing, but ultimately the person who's responsible for granting forgiveness is none other than King Jesus himself, and he is your high priest. And here's the other thing, church. Here's what I love about Jesus, right? Hey, If you will confess your sins, I am faithful and just to forgive your sins. You don't have to come seek me out. I can trust that my standing with Jesus hasn't changed at all. But I'll bring my sin to him. And here's the part that I love. is real repentance. We'll talk about in a minute. You can have confidence that you are forgiven and anything you bring to him will be forgiven. I don't worry, I'm not saying that I don't feel despair, but I don't worry that if when I go to Jesus in prayer to confess my sins, like, hmm, I wonder if he'll forgive me. I don't worry about that. I know he will. Why? He's dead and raised. That's enough. 
That's enough. And it's also not a ritual. We'll talk about this more next week when we talk about baptism. But some people associate, and I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with associating repentance and baptism together. We'll discuss it. But I need you to understand this. Just because you raise your hand, walk an aisle, say a prayer, get dunked, does not mean you've repented. I want to make that abundantly clear. Okay, we're talking about a godly sorrow on the inside, working itself out in these ways. The second thing is this, or the third thing. Repentance involves faith. Repentance involves faith. Here's another thing that the audience would have understood that we, t- we tend to bifurcate, we tend to compartmentalize, is that a lot of times when I talk, or when I preach the gospel, I'll say you must repent of your sins and trust Jesus as your Savior, or have faith in Jesus as your Savior. Really, what you'll see in the New Testament is to say one is to assume the other. Okay? In fact, read Acts 20, verse 21. This is the Apostle Paul talking about his mission to reach the world with the gospel. What was it that he was preaching? Notice this. I testified to both Jews and Greeks, non-Jews, about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the idea is this. They're synonymous. If you repent of your sins in the New Testament, you are placing your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of them. And if you have given your life to Christ and you have placed your faith in his hands, it means you've repented of your sin. Okay? So even when you see the word repentance or when you see the word faith, they're not, they're not uh, separated. They're highlighting different nuances of the same thing. They're two sides of the same coin. So here, and the reason why does that matter is because, so to speak, let's just say... <laughs> You had a godly sorrow for sin and you said, I'm going to commit to becoming a better person. That has fallen short of the gospel response. That is this, I am a sinner and there is nothing I can do about it apart from turning to Jesus for the forgiveness of my sin. Completely different. And then there's also this idea of a, of a gospel that's preached without repentance going, just trust Jesus, and essentially you give people a license or a permit to go and live however they want. The Bible knows of no such thing. Okay? This repentance encompasses both spheres. Number four, let's break it down. Now we're going to, I kind of told you what repentance isn't. <laughs> Now I'm going to give you some positive direction. What happens? And these are the marks. I would tell you right now, right now, you need to start asking yourself, have I experienced this? And I don't mean just at the moment you were saved. I'm talking about on an ongoing basis. Repentance is both instantaneous and lifelong. The first one is this. Repentance involves an altered view. It involves an altered view. It is an altered view, listen church, of your sin. It starts with you. Those who repent don't go and say, I've never sinned, but boy, look at this world. (laughs) Repentance wrought in a person starts with, they look at their own lives and goes, this is messed up. They start with themselves. And it changes uh, their view of God. They see the holiness of God and the mercy and love of God. They see both and. They realize a holy God should have me destroyed. But I'm also assured he loves me and forgives me. It's both and. It is the fundamental shift in one's perspective towards your own sin and who God is. If I give you an illustration, I'm going to go over. Can I go a little over? (laughs) So the prodigal son. It's my favorite story about repentance. Now that's not the function of the story, but it gives us an idea. Remember what the prodigal son does? In the book of Luke, when Jesus gives a story, he goes, hey, I want my inheritance. I'm out, Dad. I don't want nothing to do with you anymore, right? Takes his inheritance, basically tells his dad, drop dead, goes and spends it on all kind of riotous living, right? And then eventually he uses it all up, and he's left himself basically stranded, eating with pigs. And I love what happens, right? Here's, it doesn't use the word repentance. Jesus doesn't use the word repentance. He shows repentance. You ready for this? It says this, that the prodigal son, it says this, and he came to his senses. <laughs> I love that. What did he, it was an altar view. At one point in his life, he's like, my life is better off without God letting me do whatever I want. And then he hit that point eventually where he goes, he came to his senses going, whoo, that is not the best thing, and I should have stayed with dad all along. 
That's repentance, church. That's exactly what God's granting you. He's going, hey, hey, you've lived your life without me. How did that work out? Not good. So let's take a different perspective and view. What do you think you want to try? Let's go back home. (laughs) That's repentance. That's repentance. Charles Simeon put it this way. One of the most essential marks of real repentance is a disposition to see our sin as God sees them. Not extenuating their guilt by vain and frivolous excuses, but marking every circumstance that aggravates their size. He's a, a repentant person doesn't give excuses. In fact, he goes, man, I've noticed this. When I'm like this in my life, this is what I do. Ooh. They take responsibility for it. Repentance is a lifelong glimpse of our sin as God sees them. Let me ask you, church, I'm asking you right now, do you have that altered view, not of someone else's sin, but of your own sin? The second thing is this. Repentance involves altered feelings. Altered feelings. Repentance is feeling your own sin to be filthy and hated in God's sight. That God hates my sin, doesn't hate me. He loves you. You're his son and daughter. Nevertheless, he cannot love something that destroys you. He hates that. And we begin to see how God hates our sin, what we're involved in. It is to regret sin from the heart and to sense this estrangement and alienation from God. To know that God can't be pleased while I continue in sin. Repentance is the revelation of the offensiveness of sin toward God, and then the beauty of Jesus, to know that Jesus loves me and forgives me. Let me give you Martin Luther. Luther said this, when a man is humbled by the law, right? You you list the Ten Commandments, and you can find out whether someone's been granted repentance real quick. If you read the Ten Commandments and somebody goes, I've done all that, I'm good. That's not repentance. You want to find out if somebody's repentant, they start going through the commandments and go, man, I messed up on all of them. And God's working on you then. Notice what he says. He says, he's humbled by the law and brought to the knowledge of himself. He's finding out who he really is. Then follows true repentance. For true repentance begins at the fear and judgment of God. I always point out, it's grace that taught my heart to fear. And then what? Grace my fears relieved. There has to be that terror first. Uh Uh-oh, I've sinned against the holy God. But there's good news. This God's provided a way. He says, and he sees himself to be so great a sinner, he can find no means how he may be delivered from his sin by his own strength, endeavor, and works. Do you catch what Luther said there? If we haven't apprehended sin, our own sin, to the point that we fall on our knees and cry out to Jesus only, If we still are left with a thought, what maybe I can better myself. He's like, you haven't been granted a full apprehension of your sin. If you really caught a glimpse of your sin, it it leaves you just, I don't don't know what I can do. Remember, it leaves, what must we do? (laughs) Repent, right? We're going to turn to God. We're going to look to God for the solution, not ourselves. Next, repentance involves, write it down, an altered life. Repentance involved in altered life. Now think about this, church. It just makes sense. Good sense. You mean to tell me God's going to change somebody's view of themselves. God's going to change somebody's feelings of themselves. And it doesn't result in an actual change in their lifestyle. That don't make any sense. God's granted me repentance, but I live exactly how I live without him. That just doesn't follow. And we're not saying, this is such an important distinction. Notice this. We're not saying this is meritorious. We're not saying, because I do these things, I must (laughs) uh, have been granted repentance. That's not necessarily the idea. The idea is because repentance has come into me, I will demonstrate, I will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I'll evidence this repentance. Repentance involves a definite Lifelong, lifelong purpose to forsake sin and obey God. It is a determination to break with it and to begin a new life of obedience and holiness. Can I tell you, this is the hard part 
uh, that I want to encourage you with. Repentance, by definition, then, will involve correction in your action. If you come to Jesus, I'll let you know right now, your life and the way you live your life will change. And I mean, if you're wondering, like, so, like, Sunday's going to change. I wish, okay? I can maybe put myself together for one day a week. No, he's going to be all over you every second of every day. Get ready. All right? And we're not talking about having this ultra-sensitive conscience. You just would not believe when the Holy Spirit, I mean, the Holy Spirit is sensitive to sin. And right when you think, right, you've made some type of progress, he'll point out something else. It's just the reality of it. And and if, if what I'm telling you doesn't ring true for you, you need to check your faith. I'm being honest with you. Okay? But here's the other one. That one's a little bit easier. It also, the Holy Spirit also changes your attitudes, which that's almost as worse. It's nice every now and then, like, you know, that was a good reminder, Holy Spirit, <laughs> to, to do that. But also the Holy Spirit reminds you, you know what? You didn't have to respond that way. Well, I couldn't help my, okay. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, he will arrest attitudes, ideas, feelings. That gets on your nerves. I ain't going to lie to you. You recognize how just sin has permeated human nature. It's the truth. And it will involve an altered life when he does this. Here's the last kind of last thing, <laughs> and I'll be done. Here's the, what I got to have you to know. Repentance includes, just as much as it includes an altered view, altered feelings, and an altered life, it includes confidence in God's forgiveness. This is so important, church. A lot of times, and I've, I can't tell you, I've probably counseled more people about the experience I just explained to you than anything else in my pastoral ministry. Where they come to me, Josh, I feel so unworthy Josh, I'm just, man, I I see my sin. How could God love me? How could God use me? And I always have to remind people, the fact that you experience that is the fact that God has completely forgiven you. Completely. I try to remind people, understand that unbelievers don't run around with that struggle. They don't. They don't know what we're talking about. If you're sitting there going like, what is, these guys are crazy. We're trying to let you know the Spirit of God has done something in us, okay? We recognize that. This doesn't come from any other place. And it's proof that Jesus sits at the right hand. That's the point. Going, he poured out his Holy Spirit and he, look, Jesus has done mess with me sitting on his throne in heaven. You catch that? So we get that whole concept. We understand that when you go through those things, Paul, I think it's so amazing that the job of a pastor, this is a good thing, is to remind sinners who Jesus has forgiven, there's no condemnation. Yes, there's conviction. Oh, there's conviction, right? But there's no condemnation. None. None. And can I remind you, if God has forgiven you, what right are you to judge him about what he can and can't forgive? If he goes, it's paid for. I don't hold it against you at all. Your life is not the result of God trying to get back at you. Okay? If you want to know how I can say that with such assurance, it's because of this. God gave his son on Calvary. He paid it all. That's why I don't worry. Is God getting back at me? No, he's not. He's not. If he convicts me or disciplines me, it's for my own good, not because he's punishing me. I don't live in that. By the working of the Holy Spirit, we are led to sorrow for sin and hatred of sin and to renounce it and turn away from it. And we seek that forgiveness and deliverance. Let me encourage you with a couple of things. Some of you go, Josh, man, I I remember so vividly when this happened in my life. When repentance was granted and this change took place in my view, my understanding, my feelings, my life. But man, where I'm at now and where I feel like I ought to be 
are, are just two different things. I want to give you two illustrations. Thomas Brooks says this, It is not falling into the water, but lying in the water that drowns. Guys, I want you to know, church, you will fall into sin. It's the lying in sin that's destructive. And so if you hear my voice today, I'm trying, it's the same. You say, it sounds like preachers are just constantly telling people to repent and trust Jesus. You figured it out. That's my job. Every week, I'm, I wonder how I could tell them in a different way to repent and trust Jesus. You're going to get up every day and repent and trust Jesus. You're going to do it probably before you go to bed. And then you're going to repeat it again. I'm, I'm writing a sermon right now. Make Christianity boring again. Let's make it boring. Because it's the truth. You repent and you trust him. He forgives you. George Swinnick put it this way. It says, a sheep may fall into the ditch and defile himself. But he hastens out of it as soon as he can. But a pig chooses that dirty place. Right? A sheep, right? A real repentant person, they fall into sin and go, I got to get out of this. A pig goes out looking for it. Where is that dirty place? Are you a sheep or a pig? And I understand this. Some believers and these believers with gentleness and respect make me sick. Okay? Some believers are like zero turn lawn mowers. Right? God just tells them it and they just, yep. I put it away. I'm done with it. You're like, the rest of us are like semi-trucks turning around. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, I'm not done yet. Right? But here's the point I want to point out to you in repentance. What matters is that you're turning. Some people turn a lot faster. Right? And some of us are just like semi-trucks. But you got to turn. Can I make you aware of this, though? This is, this is why, and I've told people this, this is the, the, the burdensome joy, the sweet torture of preaching. Because I know that every Sunday I get to come up here with a nuclear bomb. That's how I feel about it. And the reason why I feel that way is because I am convinced of this. There is no other power other than the gospel that can reach down into a person's soul, their very essence, and change who they are. Everything else is some level of reform or education, and those aren't, those aren't bad things. But what, what Christians are professing is that this gospel can reach down to the very core of who you are, change your view of yourself, others, feelings, and your entire life, and the way you do your family, your job, everything. One way it can do that. And what are we saying? It's, it's, it's that it's God granting you repentance through the preaching of the gospel. And that, you go, that sounds like foolishness. You're right. That's exactly what God chose to do. Walter Shantry put it this way. The Bible knows of no such grotesque creature as one who is saved but unrepentant. No illegitimate son will enter God's kingdom. They must have faith as their mother, but they must also have repentance as their father. And then Cyprian of Carthage, an early church father, said this, To him who remains in this world, and he means if you're living and breathing right now, listen to what he says, no repentance is too late. The approach to God's mercy is open, and the access is easy to those who seek and apprehend the truth. God's not putting any obstacle. If you're living and breathing today, God has given you the space for repentance once again. And his arms are wide open. Come on. St. Peter says in Acts 5.31 that him, Jesus, hath God exalted as prince or leader and savior to give repentance and forgiveness of sin. Repentance is a gift from God and it's wrought by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the word of God. But what's amazing is that this repentance is available to anyone. Will you ask, how will we respond? With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to give you an opportunity. Now, to, this is what's so essential. When I'm about to lead, lead you in a prayer, again, to say this prayer just to say it, is nothing more than a ritual, and it has no power to save. I want to make that completely clear. 
But if you have received this altered view of yourself, your sin, the holiness and love of God, and you are ready to cry out to Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, then I'm saying is use this prayer for repentance, if that makes sense. But repentance precedes this prayer. If there is no godly sorrow, this doesn't matter. But if you go, I really am sorrow for my sin, and I want to be saved. When you say this prayer silently in your heart to King Jesus, he's not dead, he's alive, he's the Son of God, so he can hear our thoughts and prayers. Just pray this, say, Dear Jesus, I confess I am a sinner who deserves judgment. But I believe you love me. You came down for me. And you died on the cross to forgive me of all my sin. And I believe God raised you from the dead. Please forgive me. Grant me repentance and eternal life. I pray this in Jesus' name. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to encourage you about the next step. And we'll talk about it next week in next week's sermon. Is he said, repent and be baptized. Baptism does not save. Nevertheless, a repentant person will be baptized. In baptism, we identify with, the, with Jesus in, our, in the death and burial. When we go under the water, we're saying Jesus died for my sins. And when we come up out of the water, we're saying Jesus rose from the uh, grave in victory and forgiveness of my sin. And so baptism marks you out. It initiates you in your Christian walk and with the church. And if you've not been baptized, I'm calling you to baptism. That's like the next step in repentance is to come out and be baptized in Jesus' name. If you've not been baptized, text BELIEVE to our text in church number. Go to our website, fill out that baptism form, that tab, or on the back of the bulletin, just check. I'd like more information about baptism and drop it in the offering plate. Give me a chance to talk to you about it. Last but not least, church, as we enter into this time of reflection and Christian meditation, I'm just going to ask you to pray the sentiment of what John Calvin prayed here. I'll read this to you, and after I read it to you, just join me at the altar. All right? Grant, Almighty God, that as you urge us daily to repentance, and each of us is also stung with the consciousness of his own sins, O grant, we may not grow stupid in our vices, nor deceive ourselves with empty flatteries, but that each of us may, on the contrary, carefully examine his own life, and then with one mouth and heart confess that we are all guilty, not only of light offenses, but of, such a, but of such as deserve eternal death, and that no other relief remains for us but your infinite mercy, and that we may so seek to become partakers of that grace once offered to us by your Son, and is daily offered to us by his gospel, that relying on him as mediator, we may not cease to entertain hope even in a thousand deaths until we are gathered into that blessed life which has been procured for us by the blood of your only Son. Wow. Will you pray that with me and meet me at the altar?
Thank you, Brother Josh. What a what a wonderful word from the Lord today, and if possible, that uh, all of us have been convicted. And and what what do we do? What do I do? <clears throat> Here's a and our repentance is genuine and real. Think about what we might could do this week. Five hundred and eighty-nine. Take your hymn books. Stand, and we'll sing one verse. Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.